It's Friday, July 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Executions to resume. The Department of Justice has announced that it will resume capital punishment for the first time in nearly two decades. Unlike many states that were having issues with a three-drug protocol, federal authorities will use a single drug, pentobarbital. Five death row inmates have scheduled execution starting at the end of this year. Jacqueline Thompson, reporter at The Hill, joins us for more. Next, Puerto Rico Governor Ricardo Rosello has announced that he will be resigning next week on August 2nd. This comes after more than two weeks of protests over corruption and mismanagement, and the release of vulgar text messages between Rosello and his inner circle. Andrew Scurria, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for this and how the incoming governor, Wanda Vasquez, is already getting calls to resign before she even starts. Finally, a mysterious occurrence has happened as accused sex trafficker and pedophile Jeffrey Epstein was found in his jail cell, semi-conscious and with apparent bruising on his neck. Conflicting reports say it could have been a suicide attempt or a ploy to get a transfer to another facility. Harry Siegel, journalist at the Daily Beast, joins us for what we know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Now it looks like they've revitalized it. They went through a process where they reviewed it through in, um, within the Justice Department, and now they've determined that they're going to start using this new one-drug process that involves, you know, just the administration of a single drug, pentobarbital. Joining us now is Jacqueline Thompson, courts reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Jacqueline. Thanks for having me, Oscar. The Justice Department has announced that we are going to resume federal executions For the first time in nearly two decades, they're going to be coming up at the end of this year and the beginning of next year already. So pretty soon, only three federal executions have taken place since 1998. Tell us what the Justice Department and the Attorney General have said with regards to this. Yes. So the Attorney General said that um, he has directed the Bureau of Prisons to enact this new protocol that will allow them to start carrying out federal executions and death penalty cases. Like you mentioned, they haven't done it for decades. And that the last time around, they used this three-drug system in order to do the executions, which is through lethal injections. But once the government wasn't able to get one of the drugs involved, they stopped doing those executions. And, you know, it really fell out of practice over the past 16 years. Now it looks like they've revitalized it. They went through a process where they reviewed it within the Justice Department, and now they've determined that they're going to start using this new one-drug process that involves just the administration of a single drug, pentobarbital. It's very interesting. So for a long time, this three-drug protocol was hampering a lot of executions at the state level. But obviously, since we hadn't been doing this on the federal level, it wasn't much of an issue. Why has it been so long since there has been a federal execution? Well, I believe it's the number of issues that, you know, we see a general shift in views surrounding the death penalty. The population in general just doesn't seem to be as big of a fan as it was in the past. And frankly, the U.S. is an outlier in the world in terms of using the death penalty. Most countries that are like the U.S., some developed nations that are democracies, they don't use the death penalty and they outlawed it years ago. So... It's something that's kind of fallen out of practice. And then also just the fact that it ended up not being able to get one of the drugs used in the three drug protocols you mentioned earlier. It's an interesting time. Uh, the death row population has declined for the 17th straight year in 2017, which is the latest data that we have. 
And the duration from sentence to execution has increased to 20 years and three months. That is a long time that people are waiting on death row. You know, the states across the country all have a bunch of different uh, rules for it. Colorado, Oregon, Pennsylvania, and California most recently issued moratoriums on this. There's also a lot of civil rights groups that are opposed to this. Uh, They say it disproportionately affects African-Americans. And while that may be true, these individuals that are being targeted for execution, uh, there's five of them that are, as I said, coming up at the end of the year, beginning of next year. These are some pretty bad guys. Can you tell us a little bit about these five men that are being put up for execution? Each of these five men, they've been convicted for the murders of children and elderly people. Each of these men, they've gone through the appeals process. They've tried to get their convictions overturned and they've run out of appeals. They've run out of options. They were, frankly, they're going to spend the rest of their life on death row unless something dramatic happened, like being exonerated by DNA evidence and getting a case reopened, or they were going to ultimately be executed as they are scheduled to be in this case. Attorneys for at least one of the men, Daniel Lee, have already spoken out and said, we have major concerns about the way this case was litigated. We have really major concerns about the DNA evidence that was used in order to secure this conviction. And we don't believe that this should move forward. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out with each of these specific cases. You know, what's also interesting is the fact that each of these are murders, and it doesn't necessarily seem to be a federal crime um, at hand here. And that's something that somebody mentioned to me earlier today, you know, that each of these offenses, while they are horrible crimes, they don't necessarily involve federal authorities or federal issues. So it's a little curious to see that it being invoked by the Justice Department at this point. Do you know how it rises to to that? They are very heinous crimes. And you mentioned Daniel Lee, he was a member of a white supremacist group. He murdered a family of three, including an eight-year-old girl. He covered their heads with plastic bags and, and, and then threw them into the Illinois bayou. I mean, this is pretty bad stuff. But how is it the severity of the crime that raises it to the federal level? Well, you know, it was all, all of these convictions seem to be secured through district courts, which are federal courts. So that does open the door for the Justice Department to make it a federal death penalty case. Um, you know, we saw that with the Sarnov brother in the Massachusetts-Boston marathon bombing. Massachusetts doesn't have the death penalty, but they wanted to pursue the death penalty as a conviction for him, so they made it a federal crime. Is there any indication that some of these can be blocked or petitioned? I know that they've exhausted their appeals. That's why they're being put up for execution. So maybe not on an individual basis, but I think there's definitely an opportunity to challenge this new policy or protocol as a whole A lot of groups have indicated that they're looking to challenge it in some sort of way, whether it's through the courts or undergoing some sort of other process. A lot of people have raised concerns about the way this protocol was adopted in the first place. They're saying that it was actually required under a federal administrative law to go through what's known as a comment and notice period that allows other groups to weigh in on this policy. But that didn't happen in this case. So there's very much a chance that we could see lawsuits filed surrounding that aspect of this being adopted. They're scheduled for December 9th, December 11th, December 13th, 2019, and then January 13th and January 15th, 2020. So they're all in very close proximity to each other. So it's going to be very interesting to see how these develop. Jacqueline Thompson, court reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. He thought that he could ride this out, but in the end, he bowed to public pressure. 
there were demonstrations that were among the largest in the history of the island. And not just the political opposition, but many of his one-time political allies just determined that he was too toxic. Joining us now is Andrew Scuria, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for having me. The Puerto Rican governor, Ricardo Rosseo, has decided that he will resign after all. This comes after about two weeks of protests and just a bunch of different scandals brewing around him. Let's start off there. Uh, tell us about his decision to actually resign, because just a few days ago, he said he was going to finish out his term. It truly seemed like he thought that he could ride this out. But in the end, he bowed to public pressure. There were demonstrations that were among the largest in the history of the island and not just the political opposition, but many of his one time political allies, people who really believed in him and the statehood movement that sort of swept him into office, just determined that he was too toxic in light of the corruption investigation that reached pretty high into his administration, as well as, of course, these leaked messages that were pretty embarrassing and insulting to a lot of people. This is the first ever resignation of a Puerto Rico governor. And the next person in line is going to be the Secretary of Justice, Wanda Vasquez, when Mr. Roseo resigns on August 2nd. She's actually jumping a step up because it should have been the Secretary of State, but he was among one of these officials that recently resigned also because he was swept up in these scandals. He actually wasn't on the chat, but he resigned anyway. And the belief is that he was asked to in order to make room for uh, someone else to be elevated to the role. Interestingly, there's a bit of uncertainty about whether and how long Ms. Vasquez will be in office. She actually said in her statement yesterday that she would assume the governorship, quote, if necessary, which suggests that there may be some deal-making going on and that uh, she could potentially step aside and make room for someone else from the party, although that's that's not clear at this point. Yeah, on Twitter right away, uh, Wanda Renuncia started trending. Uh, Wanda resigned, basically. I think chants were coming like that from protesters still. She has kind of a checkered past there in the administration also, where there's a few things that she went through. So it just seems like the people of Puerto Rico want completely new leadership in there. Right. Well, she doesn't have a popular mandate. Uh, the only uh, people who are on the ballot uh, every four years are the governor and the lieutenant governor. And uh, she people, I think, put her in the same bucket as the sort of establishment uh, political culture that they have been uh, railing against in the streets for the past couple of weeks. How did things get so bad for Ricardo Rosseo? Because from my understanding, he kind of insulated himself with just a bunch of yes men, very close associates and aides, and, you know, shut a lot of people out, a lot of outside counsel, let's say. And he just kind of lived this way. And at the end, when, you know, the scandal started getting out of control, he really had nobody left. Everybody ditched him and he was very isolated. He did surround himself with with confidants, and he uh, also got into a bit of a tiff with the Senate president earlier in his administration. And th this led to an increasing political isolation over time that left him, you know, without any friends at a moment where he needed it the most in order to kind of ride out uh, this this difficult time. And as I said before, his allies just just weren't willing to stand with him when the heat was on. Give us the state of Puerto Rico right now, because the next governor has a lot on their hands. They're still reeling from the hurricane. 
Um, the electrical system out there is just shot. You know, after the hurricane had hit, it took like 11 months for a lot of people to get power back. The economy is horrible. There's just a ton of problems there. Whoever becomes governor next will face an enormous challenge uh, because this populist wave sweeping the island has really raised expectations for reform. Uh, yet whoever comes into office is going to deal with a very weak set of institutions and an increasingly large credibility gap with Washington lawmakers and with the Trump administration. And because of the fact that Puerto Rico is a territory and answers to Congress, gets its money from Congress, ultimately can have its will overridden by, by Congress under the Constitution, it, it's difficult for them to get anything done without Congress's uh, participation. At the same time, the population is really demanding a tougher line against more federal oversight. So how a new governor is able to balance that and still push initiatives forward on the debt restructuring, on infrastructure investments, uh, it's a very tight path to walk. As you mentioned, it was one of the most historic protests a few days ago there in Puerto Rico on the island. This is something they wanted. They wanted Roseo gone. Now they have it. How are they feeling? There's a sense of relief, I think, um, and I think it's important to remember the context that, you know, it, it wasn't just the chats that set people off. They touched a nerve because it was trauma after trauma after trauma. First, the trauma of the bankruptcy, knowing that their elected leaders uh, got them there, put them under that mountain of debt. Then the sense after the hurricane that the elected leaders were not looking out for their interests like they should be. And then what came out in the chat sort of confirmed everyone's worst fears uh, or what they suspected deep down and just really, really touched a nerve. Uh, now that that has been relieved, I don't think anyone thinks that, that their problems just went away. Uh, but there is a bit of a psychic lift, I think, that comes from having achieved something, uh, something tangible. Well, one more week to go before Ricardo Rosseo is gone. Andrew Scuria, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. You know, he's just been denied bail. He's stuck in this very unpleasant jail. That's not a uh, kind place. And now he's got these bruises on his neck. Joining us now is Harry Siegel, journalist at The Daily Beast. Thanks for joining us, Harry. Thanks for having me. Accused sex trafficker and pedophile Jeffrey Epstein has not been having a good time in jail. He was found in some kind of medical distress in his cell. The reports were that he was uh, found on the ground in the fetal position, uh, that he was semi-conscious, and people think that he might have uh, tried to commit suicide. But there's a bunch of different things. It's kind of a mystery as to actually what happened. What do we know about this? Well... We don't know much. Here's what I can tell you. We know he's being held at the uh, Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan, which is a pretty uh, infamous place. We know that, uh, you know, he'd been there actually along with down the hall from, in fact, uh, Paul Manafort and also not down the hall, El Chapo. Remarkably, I've been told from a, from a source with knowledge that he was in general population for the first couple of days he was there which seems like a very unwise move for a billionaire or multimillionaire pedophile. And uh, indeed, he was then moved into some sort of protective custody. Then at this point, you know, he's just been denied bail. He's stuck in this very unpleasant jail. 
that's not a uh, kind place. And now he's got these bruises on his neck. There have been some reports that maybe this was a, a lovely other prisoner who is a former police officer who murdered four people and is um, gigantically huge. That person denies this and says him and Epstein got along great. There's been speculation that this was Epstein's attempt to get to a nicer lockup, which does happen for various reasons. Paul Manafort, in fact, just moved out and back into, as first reported of the Daily Beast, his lovely prison in Pennsylvania, uh, which is a much, much nicer place. But past that, we don't know. We only know that he is still at MCC, not in a local hospital, as some media outlets had reported, and that they are not providing any additional updates and uh, that he was found with bruises on his neck. Right, yeah. I mean, the reports are all over the place. Uh, Four sources have kind of been cited a lot of places. Two of them said that they think it might have been an attempt to hang himself. As you mentioned, he was denied bail, and he had requested to be put in house arrest at his $77 million Manhattan mansion. Um, but, you know, they said he's a flight risk. and they, that, they, That's where he had the loose diamonds yeah. and the half million dollars and the crazy uh, passport that said he was a citizen of Saudi Arabia with his bizarre backstory for why he had that and a suggestion that was proven false that he didn't use it. Yeah, he's a flight risk. And, and, and obviously, and friends with two of our living presidents, this is not someone to just let out. And he's not someone who's used to being locked up. Even when he was convicted previously, you know, he was doing bizarro uh, prison days where he was spending 12 days in his private office, where he was reportedly having more girls come in while he was nominally incarcerated. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, so tell us a little bit more about this former police officer. Some reports said he was questioned. Uh, they could have possibly been an assault, but his attorney and he deny it. They say that uh, he and Epstein get along very well. They're actually together decrying the conditions there at the Manhattan jail. Right. So the officer, former Nicholas uh, Tartagliani, has been, by some accounts, questioned. He was definitely someone of interest to the uh, authorities at MCC. Um, You can see some pictures of him. He is a gigantically enormous-looking guy, not like Epstein. He has been complaining about the conditions there. He's reportedly in trouble after a cell phone was found in his cell. This happened a few days earlier. And he'd been previously assaulted, according to his attorney at the prison last year in 2018. and was hospitalized in two weeks with a fractured eye socket as he's awaiting trial for a thing with a drug ring gone bad. And what are you guys learning about the conditions there? Because they're saying that there's flooding going on, there's rodents, there's horrible food. This is pretty consistently, uh, there are a lot of jails and prisons that have bad conditions. The the reports here have been particularly bad. And uh, Tartagliani and his lawyer have called the place a hellhole. And insects, as well as rats, filthy uh, linens and um, busted equipment, you know, and often uh, just about any lockup. But but at the moment, there have been so many high-profile people here, it's drawn some attention. We'll see what's going to happen with this Epstein case. The start date for his trial hasn't been set yet, so he's got a lot of time to be spending here in this jail. Harry Siegel, journalist at the Daily Beast, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Brooke Peterson and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.